Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. I didn't, none of it mattered. It was like every moment of every day, I wake up, I'm after God's presence. Every moment I'm after God's presence. And I existed that way for a while. But then, I started into ministry. <laughs> but then I started into ministry. Oh, this does flow well. This does flow well. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. This flows well. Thank you, Jesus. Then I started into ministry. And I started into ministry and expectations and standards and exams and qualifications and all of this stuff does a really good job of just squashing it out of you. <laughs> because you start pursuing the ministry and not the presence. And you start pursuing the church and not the presence. And you start working towards the pleasure of men and versus the pleasure of God. And you start looking at men and women and ministers versus the glory. And it just squashes it right out of you. You know, when you get started in ministry... It's super easy to preach a message. Listen, when I, was, when I was starting out, before I got called into ministry, rather before the realization of the calling, it's super easy. I could jump up in the middle of church service and give an exhortation like nobody's business. And the, everybody in here, everybody in here, if God moved on your heart, you have enough life and enough tenure as a Christian to where you could testify about the goodness of God. I'm, I bet everybody in here. I'm not saying you would like being in front of people, but sometimes the Holy Ghost gets on you and you're just like, I got to say something. You know, and just about everybody in here could do that. That's called the overflow. That's right. You've been in God's presence. You've had him move on you and it flows out of you and you can't stop it. And that's why you look like an idiot. And praise God for looking like an idiot in church. Praise God for the glory running and the dancing and the shouting and the screaming and the climbing on the back of pews because that's the glory. That's experiencing the presence and you're like, I gotta do something because something spiritual is going on and it's affecting you in your heart and your mind and even carried out through your body and your mouth and all of these different things and you just can't keep it in. You got the fire shut up in your bones like Jeremiah says, right? Like that, anybody can do that. Anybody can break out with a word. But the funny thing about ministry is that sometimes the overflow isn't there. Sometimes the ministry squashes it out of you and you're concerned about pleasing people and about making sure your church is good with you and you don't want the board of deacons to be mad at you or the elder board to be mad at you or the church council to be mad at you or your bosses or your superiors or the bishop. or You, know, you don't want people to be mad at you so you want to do things the way that everybody wants them or expects them to be done because you don't want to rock the boat. And so 
the overflow isn't always there. That's the hard thing about ministry. Is you're not always going to have the overflow. The well ain't always going to be flowing over. Sometimes you're going to be scooping so far down you're getting dirt with your water. I mean, sometimes you are. And that's just life. Sometimes you're going to feel like your cup has a hole in it. And every time God pours in, it just flows right out. Because it just won't, you can't keep anything in because you're so dry. You're so dry that you're like a mummy in a pyramid in the desert in the center of Egypt. Like you are dry. And it doesn't matter how much the Nile overflows, it ain't getting you. That's, sometimes ministry is just like that. And it sucks. But sometimes that's just the way it is. And what the problem with ministry is, is we say, well, you've got to preach a sermon anyway. So then we create systems and structures to preach. We do. One of the toughest things about becoming a preacher is preaching week in and week out and week in and week out. Sunday is relentless. It's always there. And if you preach more than once, then Wednesday's relentless. And then Sunday, and then Sunday night, and then Wednesday, and then Sunday, and then Sunday night. Maybe you have a Bible study, or maybe you have radio recordings, or maybe you have a TV program, or maybe you've got this and this and this and this and this. And it's like it's relentless. It's just always there. It's just always there. And those dry seasons hit. And they become so dangerous. Because in those dry seasons... Sunday's still coming. Sunday's still coming and you're dry. But Sunday is four days away and you ain't got nothing. Now Sunday is three days away and you were going to have study time, but now you've got an emergency and you're doing a hospital visit and your day is shot. Now Sunday is two days away and you still got nothing. Now Sunday is one day away, but your kids got games and you've got this to go to and that to go to and you've got an hour of study time, but you go to study and pray and it's just as dry as if you never walked into the prayer closet at all. And now Sunday is a couple hours away and you still got nothing, but you got to do something because it's expected of you because that's where religion has put us. And so what people do is they get their little computer out and they open their laptop up and they go, sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And then they got slides that come up and outlines that come up. Pay five ninety nine for this sermon. Out- oh, it comes with a slideshow. Click. Or maybe they don't want to pay the five ninety nine <laughs> because they don't want a receipt for their dryness. So maybe they open the filing cabinet drawer and they go back, well, it's been two years since I preached this message. They don't remember. Half of them got mad at me and left, so I'll just pull this sermon out because it had life in it back then. And it's just as dead and as dry as anything else. But guess what? It lasts 35 minutes, 40 minutes, so they don't feel like they failed because the time qualification for the sermon has become more important than the Spirit of God in the sermon. (laughs) You say, come on, it's the truth. It's the blessed truth. And and worship's the same way. We got to throw people up here just because that's what's expected. And it's like, why? Why? 
Why does it always have to look the same? Why does it have to be three or four songs, an exhortation, three or four songs, and then the offering, and then the sermon? And it's got to be one fast song, and then two slow songs, and at the third slow song, the tempo's got to change at some point to try and incur emotional response so that everybody feels like, oh, this is when the Spirit moves. She jumped the key, so the Spirit moved. Or she dropped the key, so the Spirit moved. We do that. There's so many songs out there. I can sit there and say in my head, everybody's going to react in five, four, three, two, one, key drop up, everybody react. Tempo change, everybody react. <laughs> the speed of the song change, that's, that's when the spirit moves. That ain't the spirit. <laughs> that's a spirit, but it ain't the spirit. But we get so concerned about these things. And I get it. I, I get uh, to a degree because, you know, you come to church and we have preachers because they are supposed to teach us the word of God. I'm not saying that the system is completely broken. I'm saying what we do with the system is broken oftentimes. One of the hardest things to figure out when I first started preaching was how long is a sermon supposed to last? <laughs> How long is a sermon supposed to last? Because ask five people and you'll get five different answers. <laughs> they say 20 minutes. That's a popular one. Serious, 20 to 25 minutes. Um, one of my favorite ministers of all time, I don't agree with half the things he says, but I really like the guy, I don't know why. But uh, R.C. Sproul preached for 23 to 25 minutes every time. And that's the statistic is 20 to 25 minutes. And I, when somebody was telling me that when I was going through um, learning how to not do ministry, let's put it that way, learning how to not do ministry, they said 20 to 25 minutes is the best time. And I said, why? And the, is it because that's how long our attention span is? We get the first 10 to 12 minutes and then the last 10 to 12 minutes. So if you do 20 to 25 minutes, they remember everything you said. And they said, no. It's because that's the average length of a television program without the commercials. Really. That's why sermons that are 20 to 25 minutes, 22 is optimum. That's why they are the most memorable because we're used to television programs. Praise God, Netflix is doing one thing with their hour-long programs. Now they're lengthening the time that we can receive in sermons. <laughs> At least they got one thing going for them. But, but seriously, that's, that's... And then I, I read Charles Spurgeon, and he said, well, it's really 35 to 45 minutes, but that was before the advent of television. So he probably would have said 20 to 25 minutes too if you asked him, and he lived and ministered in modern context. And then you have these people that are preaching an hour to an hour and a half, and it's like, wait a second. They're preaching for an hour to an hour and a half. Is that how long I'm supposed to preach? And I struggled with this. You can laugh, and it's funny. I laugh at it now, but I struggled with this because you think you can preach out of the overflow and God anoints you to preach out of the overflow. There comes a time where he removes the overflow to see what you do when you're dry. He doesn't hide his presence to tease us, but he hides his anointing to prove us. Are we going to press in and wait for him? Or are we going to just take the easy road out? And let me tell you, a lot of people take the easy road out. I'd rather, and this, 
this is a confession. I would rather stand up here and say, guys, God hasn't told me anything than to stand up here and to preach something that God didn't give me. So how long should a sermon be? One of my favorite answers, I'll I'll tell you the real answer, my answer, and then I'll tell you one of my favorite answers because it'll be a better segue into the, the sermon. But my answer is the sermon should be as long as the Spirit of God is talking. If that's five minutes, if that's 50 minutes, if that's five hours. And I'm serious, if that's five hours, it's five hours. But here's the problem. The Spirit of God stops talking oftentimes in 10 minutes and a preacher drags it out for 45. That's why you doze off and fall asleep in church. And that's why it's dead and crusty, dusty. And it's like trying to eat crackers and chew peanut butter at the same time. It's rough trying to eat peanut butter and chew gum at the same time. I don't know why I said crackers. Crackers and peanut butter is amazing. <laughs> that's why it's trying to like eat peanut butter and chew gum at the same time. It's impossible and nasty and dry and clashing of flavors because you're trying to find the anointing and it ain't there and it's been dead for 30 minutes and they're still just dragging on. They're on their eighth rabbit trail and they still ain't caught a rabbit. But that, that's what preachers do because it's like i gotta make it to that 40 minute mark or i gotta make it to that 25 minute mark it's like dear lord just shut up (laughs) i mean i i this is confession i have been in church services before and i have been dreading the second half of the sermon i've been like lord i'm trying to be respectful because i really love that person that's preaching but the anointing left if the oil was ever there to begin with it ran out 10 minutes ago and they don't even look like the plane is anywhere near the airport (laughs) and i'm like can you shut them up lord i have prayed that before (laughs) that's confession i have prayed that before i'm like lord can you can you tell them that they're done (laughs) because everybody knows it but them (laughs) Here's how a sermon should be prepared. If you guys ever want to teach or preach, here's what I expect of you. Serious. Step one, open your Bible. Because if a sermon doesn't have Bible, it's a waste of my time and yours. Step one, open your Bible. I'm going to open it to where we're going to be. Step two, ask God, what am I supposed to preach from this? Not what am I supposed to say, because then... All kinds of spirits will try to start speaking to you. What am I supposed to preach from this? Step three, stare at it until it gives you an answer. That's it. Literally, that's how I prepare for every message. Open my Bible, ask God, what am I supposed to preach from this? And then I stare at it (laughs) until he gives me an answer. Serious. Now, you people bring in resources and stuff. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, prove that you're not saying anything heretical. Use resources. That's fine. That's all well and good. I don't care about any of that. What I am saying is sermons should be born from the prayer closet. They should be born out of the presence of God. I don't care if you've got an overflow or not. I want you to have an overflow, but if you don't have an overflow and you're dry as dust, this isn't. This is never dry. This is always full of life. And if you have planned on preaching a series and you're looking and that next message in the series is dry, that's because God ain't in it. Flip through it. Play Bible roulette until you land on the right spot. 
I'm serious. And you're probably asking, why is he talking? Because today, we're in a series, and it does have life in it. And I want to preach this message, but I asked God, how in the world am I supposed to express what I believe he's communicating to me in this message? And I preach for you guys every Sunday and Wednesday, and I preach for Cleveland on the radio, so today I'm preaching for me. So if you like it, great. If not, tune in next week. Because <laughs> I'm preaching for me today, because God has been speaking something to me today. And I'm trying my best to listen. I had been, I had been in depression for five years, and it really started right after I got into ministry. Right after I became full-time, not as an evangelist, because I was an evangelist for a long time, and I was fine. But when I got into pastoring, it wasn't no time, and I was in depression. The preaching every single week, and that's not why. There was a lot of things in that. But God has recently brought me out of that, and he's done a work. I mean, a full-blown work. He's brought me out of that. And now he's speaking something to me, and I'm like, well, dear Lord, I have got to discern what it is he's speaking to me. And so I was asking, how does this all segue? And it fits, because the series that we've been in, it's kind of really been in three sections so far. This is, or two, this is the end of the second section. The first section was the opening, the resolution. How are we going to do ministry? You know, we're not going to do ministry the way that everybody else does. We're going to do it like Paul. I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then we talked about the covenant of redemption, and then we talked about Christ and creation, and then we talked about Christ all the things that happened, prophecies and everything, before his advent. That's like the first section, because that's like an introduction. And then the second section, Act 2, really introduces when Christ comes in. That's the incarnation. That is the beginning of what's called the humiliation of Christ. When he set his glory aside, because he doesn't set his divinity aside, he set his glory aside, and he came and he was born of a virgin, took on flesh. And then we did Christ's advent we did his circumcision we did his early childhood we did his baptism in the wilderness temptation we did the calling of the disciples and then last week we did the miracles um or one miracle to kind of encapsulate the ministry of miracles and today i told you we're going to do the teaching to encapsulate the teaching of christ the teaching ministry of christ and so this is like the end of the second section because next week we're going to go into getsemane which really gets into the humiliation of christ his suffering in the garden his suffering at the hands of Pilate and at Herod his suffering on the you know the chastisement the whipping post his suffering on the Via Della Rosa his suffering on the cross all of that up into the resurrection and so on and so forth so next week really gets into the humiliation of Christ but right now we're finishing out this kind of plateau you have Christ in eternity before his advent then you begin the humiliation where he's born of a virgin. And for 33 and a half some odd years, there's no more humiliation. Like he, he came down, set his glory aside, and he lived on this plateau doing ministry, favor with God, favor with the people. And then next week, Gethsemane really begins the humiliation of Christ, like the, the next descent. So I thought, okay, this message has to kind of like encapsulate everything that we've done over the past few weeks but we're talking about the teaching ministry of jesus and so it makes me reflect on hey that's what i do there was a young man i don't know where i heard this story 
But there was a young man, he was going to become a minister. And they ask you, when you're trying to become a minister, they ask you the most outlandish and stupid questions. But they have to, in a certain sense, because you may have a stupid question for a stupid, or a stupid answer for a stupid question, and then they have to be like, okay, let's, let's talk. But they asked this young man, they said, how long should a sermon be? You know what his answer was? Not 20 minutes, 25 minutes, not an hour, not 40 minutes. He said 11 minutes. 11 minutes. And they said, what? He said, yeah, the perfect sermon I think would take about 11 minutes. And they were like, where do you get that? Who, what dummy have you been listening to? You know what he said? He said 11 minutes is how long it takes me to read the Sermon on the Mount out loud. And that's a pretty good sermon. Yeah, I happen to agree with you, bud. 11 minutes. If I could say half of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in 11 minutes, I'd stand up here 11 minutes every single time and be done and walk away. I'm serious because there is nothing. Look, I love the Bible, and I'm going to be honest with you. It's all the inspired Word of God. But there are certain parts that are just a little bit more chalk-filled than others. If you can't agree with that, compare Second Chronicles to Ephesians and talk to me. There are certain parts that are just a little bit more meaty than others. Listen, I love to go to the local goat. I like to get a side salad or an appetizer salad, and I like to get a steak. The whole meal is good and blessed, but the salad is not as wonderful as the steak. It's just not. It's all necessary to complete the meal, but the one thing is not as good or as meaty or as wonderful as the other. It's necessary. It's still inspired. It's just not the same. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most meaty section in the entire Bible. And here's why. Because it's really an abridged version of the entire Bible. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, those three chapters really contain the fullness of the message of Scripture in those three chapters. You have everything from everything finding its origin in God. You have the law. You have how the law is not enough and you need a greater righteousness. You have how, how God loves you, how you're supposed to act in light of that love. You have judgment. You have repentance. You have forgiveness. You have teaching on prayer, teaching on fasting. You have teaching on giving. You have judgment hall. You have heaven. You have hell. It's all there in three chapters. And it takes 11 minutes to go through it. It just is absolutely mind-blowing. And so I'm like, okay, Jesus, obviously, if we're going to do the teaching, your teaching ministry, we have to do the Sermon on the Mount. Because it really just capitulates the whole thing. But how do you preach the Sermon on the Mount? Do I just stand up here and read it? Because that was my plan. I was going to do an intro and kind of like do something like what we did I didn't know what because I never know what but I was going to do that and I was just going to read it and be like you're welcome Merry Christmas go home have a great life like that was what I was going to do because even that would have been enough but like I said this is for me not for you so after you leave go home and read this sermon on the mount you'll be blessed if you don't get anything out of this get it from Jesus because <laughs> if you dependent on me, we watch a show. <laughs> I, it's it's got some issues, but it's a great show, and we skip past the issues. But it's called Once Upon a Time. And look, I, I ain't gonna say this. Can face looking at me? She's like, dear God, don't say it like she said it. But basically, he says, you're our only hope, and she says, well, you're all 
out of luck. She says it a little bit different, but that's the gist of you're all just completely out of luck. If I'm your hope, you're out of luck. Listen, if, if you're putting trust in me, I'm going to let you down. Just give me time. But the reason I'm doing all of this is because God wrecked me over this. He's been speaking to me this for a long time. So Matthew chapter 6, starting verse 1, we're going to read 24 verses. Lord, help me. Take heed that you do not do your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Not you have some reward or you have less reward. No, you have no reward. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you that they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. But be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what you have need of before you ask him. Thank you, God. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. They disfigure their faces. They may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore thy light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for neither he will, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There's a lot in that. There's a lot. And I want to start at the end and go back to the beginning, because we don't do things the normal way. But before we start at the end, put verse 21 up. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the center, center verse. I don't know if it's in the exact middle. It's pretty close. But this is the center verse for the Sermon on the Mount. This is the hinge verse. If the Sermon on the Mount is an abridged 
version of the message of the Bible. This is an abridged version of the abridged version. Because everything that is being communicated is being communicated right here. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But here's the issue. When we read this, we have a couple of preconceived ideas that have to be abolished before we can actually understand what's being done here, or what's being communicated here. The first one is our heart. I have heard so many people teach on the heart, and 95% of them have no idea what they're talking about. They're just taking guesses. I've heard people teach, well, the heart, you know, that's the organ in your chest. Okay, yeah, you're right. I've heard people teach, well, the heart, it's really equatable with your spirit. It was bad and then it made good. Was bad, now good. Well, you're right, but you're also wrong. And then I've heard people say, well, your heart is really like in place of your soul. Like your mind, your will, your emotions, your intellect, all that, your desires, your impulses, your imagination, all that stuff. Like that's really your heart. Well, you're right, but you're also wrong. The heart is this mesh seat that is the very center of our being. It is the only thing that applies to spirit, soul, and body. It is the only thing that touches spirit, soul, and body. Your heart is the core of who you are. That's where your spirit, your soul, and your body meet. Yeah, it's a bump in your chest. But it's also the throne where God is supposed to take his seat. And it is also the center of your emotions. That's your heart. So when it says your heart, it's really talking about you. You, all of you. Not part of you, not a piece of you, all of you. That's why it says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Yeah, you are deceitfully wicked. I am too. We need Jesus. Trust not in your heart, but trust in the Lord. Like over and over and over again, your heart is you. If you just go through and every time you see heart, you just say me, you ain't going to be bad off. Because when it talks about the heart needing fixed, it talks about you needing fixed. It's the center, the core of who you are. It's not just, oh, my treasure's here, so my desires are there. No, your treasure's there, that's where you're at. You store your treasures up in earth, you in earth. You're supposed to have your conversation in heaven, but your treasures aren't in heaven, they're in earth, guess where you're at? Or worse still, your treasures are in hell, guess where you're at? But now we need to talk about treasures. Because in our Western mindset, we see treasure, we think money. How many of you guys have read this and you thought money? Be honest. You read this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You're thinking your money, your bank account. Don't lie to me. You can, you can acknowledge, shake your head, wave. I know more of you have thought that than what just raised their hand. But it's talking. You guys remember a while back I talked about oikonomics. Oikonomics, not economics, oikonomics. Oikos means family, nomics means the, you know, the distribution, the management of, so it's the management of your household, your wealth. I told you there's five different forms of capital, right? There's financial, there's physical, there's intellectual, there's relational, and there's spiritual. Five forms of capital. That's five forms of treasure. Where your capital is at, there your heart will be also. So you may have and put your money in the right place, but your presence, your physical being may not be in the right place. You may put your body in church 
And you may put your money in the right place, but your mind isn't. Or your relationships ain't in the right place. Or your spiritual investment isn't in the right place. What Jesus is communicating is where you lay up treasure, your financial, your physical, your intellectual, your relational, and your spiritual treasure, where you store that treasure up, that's where you're at. You store it up in hell, you're in hell. You store it up on the earth, you're on the earth. You store it up in heaven, guess where you're at. This is an exhortation about what you do with your stuff is where you're at. So now we're going to talk about the heart. You can go to verse 24, the end of it. This is going to be a little complicated. I'm going to simplify it as much as I possibly can, but I'm going to give you some phrases that I invented. Yes, I invented them. I do stuff like this. Write them down. If you don't like them, change them. I don't care. But the, the point is valid. That's what I want you to get. I want you to get the message. I want you to get the message behind it, not just get caught up on the phrases and the words. Verse 24, the very last line of that, it says, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic transliteration, meaning that it is an Aramaic word, and instead of changing the word or translating it and putting the translated word in here, they just grab the word and put it. They do that, baptizo, baptism. You know, like that sometimes they do that because there's not a good enough word in the language that it's being translated to. That's why hallelujah is the same in every language because there's not a word that communicates or expresses that idea. So they transliterate. Don't translate, transliterate. They carry the word from one language to the next. But mammon means treasure. It means treasure or riches. And so what's being communicated here is you cannot serve God and treasure. And we just talked about treasure, the five different types of treasure. You could almost say this. You can't serve God and yourself. You can't serve God and self because if you're serving treasure, who are you serving? Self. But guess what? Self outside of God is subject to the spirit of this world. So you could also say you can't serve God in the spirit of this world. But guess what? The spirit of this world has a name, and his name is Satan. <laughs> Where also in times past you had your conversation according to the course of this world after the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Satan is the spirit of this world. So you can't serve God and Satan. You can't serve God in the spirit of this world because that is Satan. You can't serve God and self because the self outside of God is subject to the spirit of God which is subject to Satan. There's only two categories. There's the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness and you're serving one. This has to do with your heart's attachment. There's a phrase for you. Your heart is attached. It's either attached over here, kingdom of heaven, or over here, kingdom of darkness. It's attached to one or the other. James says it this way. He says, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You're attached to one or the other. Like Velcro. You either Velcro to God or you Velcro to the spirit of this world. And your heart's attachment is going to produce something. It's going to dictate a particular orientation. That's why the next, going backwards, you see this thing about your eye. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be single, the whole body will be full of light. 
But if the eye be darkness or be evil, the whole body will be filled with darkness. You see that? Jesus is preaching this, and he is doing it in a deductive reasoning style. He's pulling a Sherlock Holmes, or rather Sherlock Holmes pulls a Jesus. He starts with the fruit, and he traces it back to the root. We're just going in reverse order, and we're starting with the root and following it through to the fruit. Make sense? So the next step, the root is your heart's attachment. Is your heart attached to God, or is it attached to the spirit of this world? Because it's one or the other. You cannot be a carnal Christian. There is no such thing. A carnal Christian is a fake Christian. A fake Christian is someone that still serves and worships the devil. And worshiping the devil doesn't mean you bow down in front of a bunch of candles in a little kooky, spooky room. It means that you serve yourself. It means that you serve yourself. You're either after God or you're after self, world, or devil. That produces an orientation. Where your heart is attached. Have you heard the phrase, bad company corrupts good character? When you're in a group of people, they affect the way you think and the way you talk and the way you act. Nobody is immune to this. In every group of friends, someone influences someone. And if you're not the influencer, you're the influencee. It always happens. If you are with God, that attachment to God produces a heart orientation towards good. Your heart is oriented towards light, towards good. It's faithful, filled with faith. Because guess what? Evil isn't just you killing somebody. It isn't just you robbing somebody. You want to know what the Bible teaches about evil? Here here it is. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Evil is unbelief. Doesn't matter what the action is. Anything that flows from a stem of unbelief is evil. So if your heart is attached to self, world, devil, it produces a faithless orientation. If it's attached to God, it produces a faith-filled orientation. Light, darkness. Make sense? Then... It goes a little bit further, and you get into what's called the occupation of the heart. So you have attachment, orientation, now you have occupation. What occupies your heart? Guess what? If you're attached to God, the orientation will be filled with faith. Guess what the occupation of the heart will be? God, and then others, and then self. Because self doesn't get missed. The great commandment, how does it flow? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. See, self doesn't get forgotten. It just is put third on the registrar. You were, you're preoccupied with God, then you're preoccupied with others, and then you're preoccupied with self. Self gets taken care of. But then over here, if your heart is attachment to the spirit of this world, it produces an orientation that's faithless and your occupation is self see we like to talk about pride and pride is dangerous because it's the one person in the new testament god resisteth god resisteth the pride but gives grace to the humble he resists the proud and we think of this and we think okay proud means i think i'm better than everybody else that is not what pride is That's narcissism. That's an aspect of pride. But that's not what pride is. Do you want to know what pride is? Pride is not thinking that you're better than others. 
Pride isn't exalting yourself over them. Pride is having a heart's occupation that is consumed with self. It's not the best, it's the only. Because you can be self-conscious and self-condemning and still be just as proud and still just as centered upon self as someone that is not. Or it's just as centered upon self as someone that is not doubting themselves but is over-arrogant. Pride isn't just about arrogance. It's about being centered and occupied with self. It isn't the best. Self isn't the best. Self is the only. Attachment produces orientation, which then determines our heart's occupation. Make sense? Now, I have talked to you guys before about affections. Affections are what we want to do. They're impulses. They're things and desires in us that dictate our behavior. They're loves. The four loves, you know, you have Sturge, or Sturge, then you have Eros, and then you have Philea, and then you have Agape. You know, the four loves, right? Relationship, friendship, romantic love, like or affection for, you know, something inconsequential like I love blue jeans or I love hot dogs, whatever. You have these loves. They dictate and determine your actions. The affections, these loves, flow out of where your heart is attached. If your heart is attached to God, it produces an orientation towards faith-filled light and that produces an occupation with God, others, and then self. And that will dictate what you love and what you do. Likewise, if it's world, self, devil, that's a faithless occupation with self it produces actions accordingly. That's why people that are so occupied with themselves that are in this category, that's why they don't care to steal from their mother. That's why they don't care to, you know, say, we're coming for your kids. That's why they don't care to say, I don't care what you believe, believe what I believe, or you're intolerant. That's why they can say these things, because they're not concerned about anything else. All their act activities, their actions, their behaviors, their thoughts, their desires flow from self. And it all flows back to the devil. No matter how you slice it, you trace that fruit down and it flows back to the devil. So that, that's what Jesus is teaching here. I gave some technical terms and some categories so you can trace it, but that's what Jesus is teaching here. And he does so through presenting these three things. Giving or acts of charity prayer and fasting and so i ask myself because i well, i ask god i ask myself while i'm talking to god why why these three can i figure it out god or do you need to show me why these three and this may not make a whole lot of sense to you but it made sense to me so i'm going to share it with you but do you remember several weeks ago when jesus um went through the temptations I gave you the three motivations for temptation. I gave you appetite. I gave you ambition and appearance. That all motivations for sin are flow from those three. It traces back to all that is within the world. is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That flows back to Eve's sin in the garden. You guys remember that whole teaching? Appetite, ambition, appearance. And then the next week, I told you that there's not just sins of commission, things you do, but there's sins that he that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is also sin. So there's also sins of omission. And I told you about three categories of excuse 
satisfaction, security, status quo, and how they kind of mesh. You know, appearance is with status quo, security and ambition and satisfaction and appetite, they all come together. Well, think about this. If you are fasting, you're, you're losing something, right? You're supposed to be eating, but you're not. That literally messes with your appetite. <laughs> and I, appetite doesn't just refer to food. It refers to the spirit behind it. Like, what can I get to bring me worldly satisfaction? But So fasting is satisfaction. And then you've got the, the giving of alms or the acts of charity. They're blowing the trumpet. They want the attention. They want the religious position. A lot of times they use these acts of charity to buy offices of priesthood. You can follow that down through. Yeah, way back when they bought the office of the Pope. I mean, you can follow this all the way down through throughout church history. This is about ambition. It's about security. It's about setting something up for yourself. And then prayer (laughs) deals with appearance and status quo because they're wanting to be seen. So it factors in, but think about this. Think about this for just a second. Let me give you guys a story. Can, can I share a quick story? It's silly, but when Faith and I first got married, we didn't have kids at this point. You have a lot more freedom when you don't have kids. <laughs> so one of the things that we used to do is we used to play cards with Mike and Eileen a lot. I will tell you this. If you ever play games with Mike and Eileen, Eileen cheats like nobody's business. <laughs> I mean, she just does. She is the biggest cheater. And, but what's funny is she doesn't even feel bad about it. She's like, this is a new aspect of the game. Like, catch me if you can. Ha, ha, ha. Like, she cheats like nobody's business. So we're playing cards, and she's, like, hiding them under her leg or up her sleeve, you know, like, just cheating like crazy. But we're playing a game called Hearts. Has anybody ever played Hearts? I love this game. But before each round, there's a preliminary step you have to take in Hearts. You have to... On round one, you pass cards to the right. Round two, you pass them to the left. Round three, you pass them across. And round four, you keep them, right? Well, we were playing, and I was just, we were just talking and laughing and cutting up. I think we had just caught Eileen cheating. I don't know. But anyway, we was having a good time. And it come to round four, but I forgot what round it was. I had a really good hand. All my cards were low, like all of them. It was just fantastic. And... I was like, do we get to keep these? And Mike loses it. He just loses it because he's got a terrible hand. And he said, you know, you can tell a lot about what someone's got by what they say. Do we get to keep these? Versus do we have to keep these? And I bring that story up because a lot of times we treat church and ministry not from the I get to, but from the I have to. I have to pray Because I'm a Pharisee. That's what Pharisees do. We pray. But I don't want people to maybe operate under the assumption that I'm not praying. So I need to stand on the street corner and let them know that I'm praying. And I'm I'm supposed to be a teacher. And teachers are supposed to fast. So I need to disfigure my face so that they know that I'm fasting. They know that I'm suffering for God. And I'm supposed to be charitable. The Bible says that we're supposed to take care of the poor. So I want to give money to bless them, but nobody's around. 
Like, I need people to know that I'm doing this because I have to do this. I need people to know that I know the Word of God, so I have to preach these hard messages. I need people to know that I'm capable of preaching for an hour, so I have to preach for an hour. I need people to know that I'm a talented worshiper, so I have to sing at the best of my ability and sing loud and fluctuate my voice and all these sound effects with my voice so that people know that I'm gifted like that. Or I need people to know that I'm a good guitarist, so I'm going to break out in a 15-minute guitar solo during worship so that everybody can pay attention to me instead of to God. Because I have to. I need to speak in tongues really loud because I don't want anyone to question whether or not I have the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. I need to stand up and shout because I need people to know that this song is one of the, my favorites. Or I need to sit down with my arms crossed because I need people to know that this song is not one of my favorites. Or I need to scowl because I need to make sure that the preacher knows I did not like what he just said. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Uh, but I need, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have to do this. Because if I don't, I'm not really fulfilling my appetite. I'm not nurturing my satisfaction, my worldly satisfaction. Or I'm violating the status quo. I have to wear a suit. Because if I don't wear a suit, I'm glad. I almost wore a suit this morning. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't now. No offense to anybody that wears a suit. I love wearing suits. But... I have to wear a suit because I need people to know that I'm professional and that I'm respectable and that I'm anointed because you can't be anointed without a three-piece suit. <laughs> I have I have to do this. I have to do that. Like, but that's what ministry has become. We've turned it into the I have to. I have to do this. I have to do that. And we have completely forgot about the I get to. I told my wife, we, we've been in conversations, and I, I, told, I told her in various conversations, I'm like, I am ready for you to enter the season of I get to, not I have to. I'm ready for me to enter the season of I get to, not I have to. I get to. I get to pray. And I don't care if it's on the street corner and people see me or if it's in my closet and only God sees me. I get to be charitable. I have the privilege of having enough. God has blessed me so that I can be a blessing. Now I get to give whether anyone sees it or not except a person that's being blessed. And I don't even care if they know. Let not the left hand, right hand know what the left hand does. That's, let not your favor or your opinion or your esteem of yourself be a good quality in your own judgment. Because that's what we do. We give, and then we'll, we judge ourselves. Like, you're so charitable. <laughs> you're, so, you're so good. You meet that law. Give yourself a pat on the back. Dust the dirt off your shoulder. You got this. You are Christian par excellence. Have you ever done that? No. Here's what we do. No. <laughs> here's what we do. We run between that and then we sprint over here to, I don't even know if I'm even saved today. <laughs> you do. You know you have. You have literally been in a possession, a position to be like, God, <laughs> as faith says, are we still good, Jesus? 
Like, if not, let me pray real quick. <laughs> Lord, please forgive my sins. Like, I confess you as my Lord and Savior. Like, we do those things. We, am I saved? I'm the best Christian there ever was. And we're like, there is no in-between. Our Christianity is a seesaw. We, what, 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 what? Like, and then sometimes we're like caught like, wait, wait, which one am I today? We get so, con but see, both of those are consumed with self. Self. And it's because our heart may be velcroing to the wrong point. And don't think of this as like the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, like I'm always in one or I'm always in the other, because sometimes we try to play leapfrog. We try to say, can I keep this foot? Can I, can I reach? I can't do the splits. Don't ask me to, but can I, can I? I should have picked a different example because the monitors are too far apart. <coughs> but it's like we're trying to like keep one foot in one and like reach over to the other. And it's like <laughs> we're half attached to God and trying to half attach to the kingdom of this world. Because we just can't deny self. And I think that if I'm not mistaken, somebody once said, that in order to follow Jesus, you had to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. But you know the great thing about Jesus? The great thing about Jesus is he doesn't leave us hanging. And he knows, he knows that we suck. I say that. That's one of my favorite words. <laughs> because I literally think to myself all the time, C.A., if there could be, you know how in the dictionary there's pictures? You know what I mean? Like there's a word in the dictionary and it's like, oh, tiger. And then it has like a picture of a tiger next to it. Like, oh, you know, show me a picture of like an automaton or something. Like why are you showing me a tiger? I know what a tiger is. But there's pictures in the dictionary next to some of the words, depending on what dictionary you got. But anyway, if there could be a picture next to Romans 7, where Paul says, the things that I would do, I don't do, and the things I wouldn't do, those are the very things I find myself doing. Like sometimes I'm like, C.A., if there could be a picture of you in the Bible, it wouldn't be in Ephesians 6 next to the armor of God. It would be in Romans 7 next to the, you can't stop screwing up. <laughs> but Jesus is so good. He is so good. Because he knows that about us. And since I had my experience, my baptism of joy, since I had that, God has been speaking to me about some, th some things. And it's not gross sin or anything like that, but he's been speaking to me about things and he'll say, hey, I want you to get rid of this. I want you to get rid of this. I want you to get rid of this. And I struggle with some of them. And I'm like, but God, I don't do anything for fun other than read and study, and this is the only thing I do. And I was like, what? Lord? But I, and I look at it in such a negative way, and we, I look at it as loss. How many of you guys do that? When God asks you to put something down, you look at it as loss. But Lord, I really like that. And because Satan wants you to. He wants you to look at what you're losing. But what God is actually doing is he is creating space. 
He's saying, hey, I want to dwell here, but there's not enough room. Would you mind creating space for me to be here? And we, if we would look at it in the positive and realize what God wants us to receive rather than what He wants us to release, it would change everything. It would change everything. Because giving alms or charitable service, you're losing money. Fasting, you're losing food. Prayer, you're losing time. There's a release of things. But it's not about the release it's about what God's wanting you to receive in that. Why do you think he says, is this the fast that I've chosen for you to afflict yourself and to go hunt? Like, no, that's not. There's something more behind it. It's not about what I want you to release. It's about what I want you to receive. I am creating space so that I can dwell there. And let me prove it to you. Can I do that? Let me prove it to you. How many of you guys have memorized the Lord's Prayer over the course of your life? Even if you forgot it now, how many of you at one time have memorized the Lord's Prayer? Praise God. Praise God. Well, let's take it slow. Let's take it slow. He says this. He says, But thou, when you pray, us enter your closet, has shut the door, pray to your Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And then he goes on, Don't use repetitions. After this manner, pray. Right? This is verse 9. John, throw this up. Verse 9. We'll give him just that. After this manner, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First thing, just wait, just stay on verse 9. We're going to go slow. This is worship. This is worship. And guess what the most beautiful thing about worship is? Worship destroys appearance. When you truly understand what worship is, you don't care what you look like. You don't care what you sound like. You don't give a flying flip what others think of you. Not one rat's behind. It destroys appearance. <laughs> Go to the next verse. Go to the next verse. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is submission. This is submission. And guess what submission does? It destroys ambition. You can't be ambitious and be in submission to God. Because you're like, God, if you want me to be the greatest preacher and the greatest pastor in the world, so be it. If you want me to have sermon after sermon hit me while I'm working at Walmart, so be it. I'm going to be where you want. I want your will to be done, not mine. You can't be ambitious and be in submission. Go to the next verse. Give us this day our daily bread. This is about provision. And guess what? Provision will destroy personal appetite. Because when you realize it's about what God wants to give you and not what you want to have, then guess what? Your personal gluttony, and I'm not just talking about for food, I'm talking about your spiritual gluttony, your desire for worldly appetite to be filled is destroyed. Go to the next one. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is twofold because there's seven parts to the Lord's Prayer, but they work together. And it's repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. And guess what? Repentance and forgiveness destroys worldly satisfaction. And if you don't understand this one, remind yourself how satisfying it is to not like someone. 
Remind yourself of how satisfying it is to hold on to a grudge. Faye showed me a real while back, and the lady was like, look, if I could open up a store where people paid me, I would hold their grudges for them. Like, what's their name? What'd they do to you? How long have we been mad? What level of escalation of anger and frustration should we be and maintain? You know, the coincidental thing is, true story, unforgiveness leads to heart disease. I know you guys have heard that. So if you don't believe that the heart is the core behind all of this, the natural studies in medicine will prove it. Another cool thing, Faye showed me this, lamb's blood cures snake venom. I didn't know that, but that's pretty awesome. Anyway, that was a side note. Repentance and um, and forgiveness will destroy worldly satisfaction because it's esteeming others better than self, and it's not a pro, uh, a occupation with self as the only, but it's about God, others, and then self. And so you lose that satisfaction because you're investing in others and their well-being. Go to the next one. And lead us not into temptation. And lead us not into temptation. This is about direction. Direction will destroy status quo. Because if God is directing your steps, you can't be concerned about keeping up with the herd. All other churches go this way and we're going this way because God's leading us here. Well, you can't do the splits. You've got to go with one or the other. <laughs> you can't serve God and mammon. So if you're going to follow the Spirit of the Lord, it may put you in a different direction than all the other churches are going. It may put you in a different direction than a denomination or it may put you in a different direction than the Spirit and the cultural climate of the world. And you may be standing in the whole world arrayed against you like Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation and everybody's against you. And you may be standing there and you're like, I cannot go against what God says. I can't. It'll destroy status quo. The next line of this is, but deliver us from evil. This is protection. And protection destroys security because you realize that you're not responsible for your own security anymore. God is. It's not about your financial security. It's not even about your safety you know, for your own life. It's about God protecting and taking care of you if he calls you in there and even if it means you're going to give your life as a martyr he is responsible for your security not you and if you don't give into that your security has become an idol because you've exalted it above god and then the next step i'm wrapping up i promise <laughs> for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever remember last week the glory we want the glory in Faith Memorial Church. The glory has a process and a price. Salvation is free, anointing isn't. Salvation is free, the glory isn't. It has a price. And here's the price. Here's the price. Denial of self. Removing our appetite, our ambition, our appearance, our worldly satisfaction, our security, and our 
desire to meet status quo. When that gets out of the way, guess what? The Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. That's what the whole message is about. If your heart is right and you're doing these things not out of the I have to and not even out of the I get to because sometimes your want to doesn't work and you won't have the I get to. It's out of the I need to because I want Him more than I want my temporary comfort. That's why you can pray when you don't want to because you want Him more than you want your comfort. You want Him more than you want your time. You want Him more than you want your safety or your security or your provision or your appetite or your ambition. He becomes the only and the most and then others and yourself will be met. But your concern and your occupation is so far with God that everything else pales in comparison. And when that happens, the road opens for the glory to come. Amen? All right, great, you're dismissed. God bless you. Oh, you're not dismissed. You can cancel the live.